Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to episode 15 of Sheer Crime. I'm Amy. And I'm Kenzie. And this week, we're covering an unsolved case from the 70s. Now, this case eluded FBI, CIA, and really the whole nation, with the suspect becoming known as a modern-day American hero by many. This is the coverage of the HBO documentary The Mystery of D.B. Cooper, an airplane hijacking turned skydiver turned mystery. Hopefully you don't have a fear of heights. Let's get going. And it's Monday today. It is a Monday. <laughs> I took the day off. So this is like, we're actually recording during the daytime. I know. It feels kind of nice. It feels really it's nice. very weird, but it's nice. No, I like it a lot. I am so excited for today's episode. I know. This has been on oh your list God. for like since the beginning. Oh, right when I saw the documentary, I'm like, we have to do it stat. Yeah. Right now. Let's get it done. I'm so excited. This is seriously so mind-boggling and crazy because yeah. this has not been solved for what 45 years or over 40 years are we for almost sure. yeah and it's like why who is it there's so many people that we will learn that think that their loved one is db cooper it's insane it and is insane. i'm going to be honest with you i didn't know much about this i knew the like the gist of it i didn't know any details but really the only part that like this stuck into my head was because of the line in the Kid Rock song, D.B. Cooper and the money he took. And that was all I knew. And then I was like, but you can look for answers, but then and not. That was it. That's all oh, I knew. I love that. So I was like, okay. I just aged myself with a, what, Bawa Taba reference? I think that was yes. Bawa Taba. Uh, but yeah, that's all I really knew. Yeah. Well, I've looked and researched it quite a lot. I mean, when yeah. I first found out about it, obviously this happened well before I was born, but I think the intrigue is there and the interest is there for so many people because it it piques your curiosity. Like yeah. what actually happened? And of course, when you go back to the the 70s and the 60s and things like that, there was no DNA testing. There was really oh, yeah. nothing there to really catch these people. And yeah, he got away. Yeah. Or she got away. They, the person. Yeah, the yeah. person got away. Yeah. The craziest part to me was the fact that there was such a lack of security in any oh, yeah. way, shape, or form back then. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we'll get into the airport situation. It was situation. Just crazy to me. I was, like, it's watching so it, and I'm like, I feel like this has to be, like, a whole nother world. Absolutely. And it basically is Absolutely. compared to what it is now. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Now, Amy, what are we going to be drinking today? Okay, so we are, of course, going to stick with our fave, Crooked yeah, Marker. Yeah, we are. Yeah. <laughs> so this week, we are going to do the tropical coconut flavor. We've had these before. We it's have. near and dear, close to our hearts. We love them. Come on. Well, and let's be honest. I mean, it's January mm -hmm. in Minnesota. Right. We need something tropical. Yes, something to take our sorrows of having all this cold and wintry, snowy weather here. For real. If only it contained some vitamin D. I know, right? <laughs> I think it would be even better. <laughs> all right, so let's pop our tops. Let's do it. 
Ooh. Nice. I almost didn't get that one. <laughs> my, <laughs> my nail got stuck. <laughs> hmm. As always, gosh, I love that soft coconut flavor. I just love the bubbles touching my tongue right yes. now. <laughs> I don't so know nice. what it is, but it just bringing me alive. So yummy. Yes. So this documentary starts off with some on-screen text stating, In November 1971, a man who became known as D.B. Cooper hijacked a plane flying out of Portland, Oregon. After demanding a $200,000 ransom, D.B. Cooper parachuted out of a hijacked 727 at 10,000 feet over Washington State. No trace of him was ever found. The case is still the only unsolved act of air piracy in American history. There remains several key suspects. So nuts. We're getting into it. We're doing it. (laughs) I didn't know that there were several people they had in mind. I know. When this came out, because this documentary came out this year, I didn't know that either. No, I I mean, I figured they had multiple people, but I didn't know they were so zeroed in on the people. Yes. And it's interesting hearing all their stories. So let's dive in. And I can't pick which one. I know. I know. It's hard. That's like the crazy part, too. It's not like one of them's like, oh, that's for sure. And the other ones are far-fetched. I mean, I have a little bit of a theory at the end, but we'll 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 get there. We start in Pensacola, Florida with Joe Weber, and she is the wife of our first suspect. Dwayne Weber. They were married in March 27th of 1978, and Dwayne actually died on March the 28th in 1995. Joe tells us that while in the hospital due to kidney disease, three days before he actually died, he mumbled to her that he buried a bucket and he can't find the bucket. We actually see this guy off screen, which at first I thought was a crew member. So did I. Of like the documentary crew. His name is Tim Collins. And we find out later in the documentary that he's Joe's quote unquote memory man. I know when I saw that, I was <laughs> like, like, is that a made up thing? What is that? I'm like, does he does she pay him for this? So this is where this story gets a little strange for me because yeah. he never knew them together. Right. Yeah. He's not like a family friend. He's much younger. Yeah. So it's interesting. So he comes in to refresh her memory. He's like, Joe, remember you brought him to hospice care. You were helping him with his pants and you asked him about his knee. And remember, he told you that he heard it jumping out of a plane. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Tim reminds Joe that Dwayne was telling her about him jumping out of a plane. Joe's like. I didn't believe him. And right before he died, he told her he was Dan Cooper. And then he said, I love you. And those were his last words. Yeah. The documentary crew asks her what she does next. And she said she called the FBI. Yeah. (laughs) Right after he died, she's calling the FBI to to phone him in and I mean, she waited for him to die. (laughs) Right. They can't really do anything at this point. And I found it kind of interesting that those were his last words. Yeah. That he was Dan Cooper. I love you. Yeah. So we'll get more into that. I just think a little, it's a little fishy to me. It's a a little strange. Yeah. They then show us an old airplane commercial. And I was like, what in God's name is going on? I literally thought it was a joke. Oh, my God. They have serving platters with different dips and crackers and cheese and stuff that they're literally walking around the plane with Uh to give to all the passengers. 
And they had hand carved meat, like a big chunk of like, I don't know what kind of meat. It I was, was going like to say prime rib or something. something. Yes. Yeah. Full glasses of champagne, like actual glass glasses of champagne. I mean, super, super elegant. I'm like, could you imagine if that was on real airplanes nowadays? Uh, Hell no. no. Let me tell you. So I flew back in July and granted it is it was covid time at that time, too. Mm -hmm. They literally handed me a paper bag that had a wet nap, a tiny bottle of water and one of those packages of the Biscoff cookies. Yep, that's all I fucking got. (laughs) I didn't even get offered a glass of pop or anything like they normally would do. Yeah. Nope. None of that. Oh, my gosh. It's just it's just so crazy. But I think it was their ploy, obviously, to get people to buy airplane tickets. Well, yeah, it was considered to be a very luxurious type of a thing. Oh, yeah. It was expensive back yeah. in the day to to buy an airplane ticket. So, yes, they were trying to to get people enticed, right, to want to fly. Now, we see on the commercial that it says, now over 400 flights a day by 22 airlines serving over 80 destinations. Yeah. And I wanted to look this up. What? today's statistics would be oh, yeah, right yeah. from back then. Sure. And flights per day on average in the world is 102,000 flights. Sure. A day. And I found that on flight-delayed.com. Okay. And then the number of airlines, over 5,000 airlines. Mm, not surprised. Totally makes sense. American Airlines is actually the largest. Oh, which I found interesting. Yeah. And then with destinations, it really kind of varies, but some of them go upwards of almost 400 destinations for one airline. Yeah. So there's lots of different places to go. You can just see how obviously big this industry is. I mean, the travel industry is huge nowadays. I mean, people love to travel. Obviously, flying is a lot safer and can be more affordable than it was back then. Way more convenient. Correct. Yeah. We meet. Tina Mucklow, she was actually the air stewardess on the flight with D.B. Cooper. They then show us the sexy stewardess commercials that they used to show. And I don't know if this was like shown on just television or like before you went on your flight. I don't really know. It was it was weird. I mean, short shorts. There was whistle calling like. Did you see the one stripping? Where they're like, oh your stewardess is not going to look like this. And it looks like a regular woman, like, right. covered up in clothes. As she's taking her clothes off and smiling at the camera and, like, sexily, sexily? Yeah. Moving. <laughs> it was horrible. And I was just like, oh, well, oh. is that where the Mile High Club thing came I, from? It had to have. It was, it was so, ugh. It I mean, was so icky to it watch was obviously a, a sign of the times. Of course. But for sure. Yeah, my first thought was. Those are some really fucking short shorts. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, we hear that Tina tells us they had to sign a contract that they wouldn't gain over a certain amount of weight. And they had to resign if they got pregnant. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. My God. It's almost unbelievable. I can't wrap my mind around that. Like, I know what the fuck. And she even says it was totally a different world. I don't even feel like that's on the same planet Isn't as it what weird? it would be today. Yeah. You know, I mean, stewardess dress very nicely, you know, when they're on the planes, but nothing like this. I think we even saw one lady. She said, you can go on any airline, but you won't get me. Yes. She made it like sound that. like she was selling herself. Seriously. It was it was bad. It was it was borderline prostitution Boy. in like a weird way. Yes, Yeah. It was weird. Yeah. 
most of us have seen Mad Men. We kind right. of see what life used to be back, you know, used to be like back then. Oh, yeah. Women, we can talk to our mothers and our grandmothers about how life was back then. And it, it is totally different. Yeah. And women just weren't viewed the same. Obviously, we were no. lesser than men. Oh, yeah. That's what we were out for is our sexuality. And, and that's what we were known for. And yes, I get it. But it's just weird seeing it's that stuff, so you weird. know? Yeah. It would be cool to see like archival, like old commercials just in totally. general of all the big brands. It'd be it'd be cool. But this was a little strange. I, I was very shocked. Yes, me too. Yeah. We next meet William Radizak, and he was actually the co-pilot on the D.B. Cooper flight. And he states that there was a fair amount of hijackings. He said, Typically, Cuban nationals were the ones who just wanted to go home. So they would hijack an airplane just to get home to Cuba. Yeah. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. And it, he was, it was almost comical. It was almost way. like, yeah, like, oh, this is just part of the job. Yes. We're and just it was occasionally like a fun hijacked. Time. Yeah. It was weird. Yeah. He said that passengers would get a bottle of rum, some cigars, and head on home thinking it was just a funny thing to get hijacked. I mean, it was never a safety issue. No. It wasn't about people getting hurt you know, taking the plane down, killing people. It was never about that. It was it was never even about money. It yeah. was just about, you know, these Cuban nationals wanting to go home. Yeah. And so he immediately states that, obviously, this flight was very different yes. because it was a hijacking demanding money. Yeah. So that fear kind of set in right away. Yeah. So we're now at Portland International Airport on Thanksgiving Eve of 1971. And we meet Bill Mitchell. Now, he was a passenger on this plane at that time. At the time, he was, you know, coming home from college for Thanksgiving, just going home to spend some time with his family. Mm -hmm. He had walked into the airport, threw down some cash for a flight. It was 20 bucks. Right. <laughs> like, crazy? what the fuck? <laughs> and he says, you know, there's no metal detectors. Like, it's a whole different era. And seriously, I even remember as a child, like, going to the airport and being able to walk like my sister to the gate with yeah. my dad and my stepmom, like, yeah, that was not a weird thing for us to stand at the gate with her and wave her off. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't imagine that now. No, you can't do that at all. Like, you're lucky if you can even get through the door. Oh, yeah. Well, and you're waiting in security for two hours. Right. Every time you go. You know what I mean? That's why you have to be at the airport so early because you have to go through security. And that actually <laughs> now makes me wonder, like, did they not have any security at that time? Well, what they were saying is they really didn't. I mean, they yeah. just, you walked in, like you just had to have a ticket. Yeah. That's all you needed. That's all you needed. If you had a ticket, you were able to go through and that's it. I don't even think you needed to show like a full form of ID. I think you just gave them your yep. name and they printed it off and they took you at your word. Yeah. Very weird. Yeah. So he says that at that time to get onto the airplane, you were walking outside on the tarmac, right? Right. And you were literally like, walking up that like flight of stairs at the back of the plane to get on. You know, the one that we see yeah. like the president do. Yes. Like this isn't what normal people do. No. But this was what normal people did back interesting. then. Super interesting. So he says you just walked up this back flight of stairs and sat down, took your seat. Now he explains that he did see this guy that kind of stuck out to him. He was wearing a suit and tie with sunglasses on and it was dark. So he thought that was very odd. Yep. He was sitting in the back row to the right in the middle seat. So kind of stuck out like a sore thumb is what it sounds like to me. And it almost makes me think that you were able to just pick whatever seat was open. I wonder. Because how lucky would he have been to get a back row seat? Right. You know? Yeah. 
I mean, I, I don't know how it was, but obviously it was much different back then. So who knows? Maybe you just bought a ticket. And if there was an empty seat, that's where you sat. Maybe you're right. Yeah. You know? It was kind of like general seating. Yeah. Yeah. You might be right. Next, we meet William Radizak. Now, he is the co-pilot for this flight that day. And he says that the second stewardess, Florence Schaffner, was out, you know, tending to the passengers before they take off. And she says that the man in the very back of the plane hands her a note. She thought he was just being flirtatious with her. So she just tucks it in her pocket and starts to walk away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the guy says, Miss, I really need you to read that note. So she does. But before she reads it, she actually sits down next to Tina Mucklow and kind of opens it up, reads it, and then shows Tina. Mm -hmm. And Tina is then telling us, the note said, Miss, you're being hijacked. I've got a bomb. Come sit next to me. Sounds super nice. (laughs) Could you imagine? I mean, my my heart would be like pounding out of my chest. Could you imagine? Uh, No, no, absolutely not. So Tina goes and takes a seat next to him. He opens up the suitcase and shows her what looked like dynamite strapped together with some wire and all of it connected to a battery. Mm -hmm. And even if that wasn't real, how would you? You would never know. People don't see bombs. I mean, you see bombs in movies and in photographs, but I'm sure she's like, oh, my gosh, this guy's serious. Oh, for sure. He has a bomb in this briefcase and he's going to blow this plane up. Yep. I'd be freaking out. He did tell her that he would not be taken alive. So I think that kind of stressed the seriousness of the situation. Right. So she begins kind of chiming the cockpit. Now, William, the co-pilot, kind of explains that in the beginning, you know, like when you're getting ready to take off and whatnot, you know, you might hear like a chime from the crew. And it's usually like, hey, did you want a cup of coffee? Like just kind of checking in. But this kept going, chiming and chiming Mm -hmm. and chiming. And usually that indicated an emergency. So she calls them on the phone and lets them know we're being hijacked. So I found it, okay, a little amusing because when our pilot William was talking about this, it almost made it seem like one chime was cup of coffee and like two or three chimes was like dead on emergency. Like, yeah, like yeah. it goes from like zero to a hundred. Yeah. <laughs> so I laughed a little because I'm like, I'm sure it's not like that. I'm sure it's like one chime, <laughs> you get some coffee and then it's like a hundred chimes and then it's emergency. But it kind of made me laugh because I just was thinking that it was yeah, from like, one to a hundred. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, she's really wanting to get us some yes. coffee. <laughs> so at this point, William, the co-pilot, I mean, it's too late to turn back, right? right. There's, it's too late to abort, take off. They're, they're going up whether they want to at this point or not. Right. Because at this point they were still on the ground, but they were like already in route to take off. Right. Yes. So you can't just like, stop a flight. I mean, you're going hundreds of miles an hour. So it's like you can't just stop, you know. Right. So that makes sense. Yeah. Now, Bill Mitchell, that college passenger, says that he was sitting there and he could not understand why the stewardess was just sitting in the back talking to this guy. Mm-hmm. Like it was so uncommon for that to happen. Well, yeah, because the stewardess is probably supposed to be up tending to all the passengers and she's just sitting, hanging out with this already Sketchy looking guy. Yeah, this strange person that has his sunglasses on when it's dark in there. Yeah. None of it made sense. Yeah. So Tina comes back on and says that, you know, at the time he had ordered a bourbon to drink and he was a smoker. So she actually lit several of his cigarettes for him because he didn't want to take his finger off of the trigger that was apparently attached to this bomb. Which I also found was interesting because wouldn't you use your other hand? Don't you have two hands? I mean, set your drink down for a second. You know, like, yeah. lazy. Come Priorities. 
Well, and I think, too, he just wanted to make sure that the crew was complying with what he wanted. Sure. He so wanted to probably, be in power. Right. A little bit of a control thing. But at the same time, it's, I mean, she even goes to say he was very polite and nice through the yeah. whole situation. Yeah. So it was more just the whole the scariness of the situation, but not necessarily him making it worse. So she just began kind of praying. She was praying for herself. She was praying for the crew, for the passenger. She was even praying for this man next to her with the bomb on his mm-hmm. lap. And she said, you know, at this point, like, what do you do? We're on a 727. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to go. Yeah. We're now at suspect number two, who's Barbara Dayton, which is a female. That When I first saw that, I was like, wait a minute, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was taking a little bit of a twist here. A little bit. Now we meet Pat Foreman. And her husband, Ron Foreman. Ron is actually a pilot, we learn. So they were just hanging out on the tarmac, as they normally do, because Ron was always there, being a pilot, obviously. And they had noticed Barbara there a lot. She was also a pilot. And they'd seen her out. And Ron's like, let's just go talk to her. Let's go see what she's about. Let's see what's going on there. I think they were intrigued, because even on, like, rainy days, when she wouldn't be up flying... She'd be parked there in her car, just sitting there, like almost waiting to get behind the cockpit. Yes. Like it was her destiny to be. Like she had to. Yes. To always be flying. Yeah. They were telling us that she was flying every single weekend if the weather was good and she was always by herself. So they also thought that that was a little strange that they never saw anyone else with her. I think back in the 70s, that was probably pretty weird. Yeah. Right. Ron goes on to tell us that Barbara was a great pilot. She knew how to parachute. She was daring and talented. They ended up actually becoming pretty good friends. Yeah. And she would come over to their house every single Sunday for dinner. And one night, Barbara says that she has something to tell them. They find out that she was the first man to have a sex change in Washington state. So Barbara had previously been Robert Dayton before her sex change in 1969. Which I found super cool. I guess I didn't realize that it had been going on that long. I know. I mean, that's what a step for someone to take, especially in that time. Well, yeah. I mean, in all honesty, I knew obviously like sex changes weren't what didn't just start happening in like the 80s or the 90s. Right. But I guess I just kind of assumed that the actual procedures didn't start happening until the 80s or the 90s. Right. Right. It's it's interesting. Yeah. Pat and Ron are telling us that D.B. Cooper was always talked about by all the pilots that were there because it had happened right in that area. So, you know, it's like kind of like folklore, like he's there, he got away with it kind of thing. Yeah. And Barbara would get angry when she would see articles in the paper saying that D.B. Cooper was an idiot or, you know, just a common criminal and he should be caught and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, she got real defensive. Yeah, she always defended him. And Ron even once said to Barb that she was D.B. Cooper and Barb gave him a dirty look and told him to never say that again. Yeah. I would almost be like, ooh, yeah. I'm a little scared. Oops. <laughs> My bad. You could kind of tell though Ron didn't give two shits. He's like, I'm going to say whatever I want to say to her because they're friends at this point. I mean, right. they've been friends for, I think he said over a year. So it wasn't right. like they just met and he starts assuming she's D.B. Cooper. So it probably wasn't all fun, but then it got serious. Now, a few weeks after that, there was a news article with a sketch of D.B. Cooper. And Ron tells us that he had Barbara comb her hair to one side, put sunglasses on, and he took a photo with her with one of those, like, you know, Kodak instant photos that, you know, develops the photo instantly. 
and sat it side by side. And he said they looked identical. You couldn't tell the difference, even though Barbara was female, right? Right. And he says that there was another couple there with them. So there is like two couples and then Barbara. Yeah. Like a little dinner party or something. Yep. And everyone was sitting in silence, just staring at her. Oh, how uncomfortable. Like it made me uncomfortable watching this reenactment. It was scary. It was a little scary. It was weird how they like zoomed in on the actors' faces and it it kind of freaked (laughs) me out a little bit. It was weird. (laughs) Basically, Barbara comes out and says, well, okay, I am Dan Cooper. And the other couple, the woman of the other couple, started freaking out. She ripped up the photo and basically ran out of the house. And she was basically, you know, screaming that they're all going to jail. Like, you know, now they know who Dan Cooper is and now they're all going to get in trouble kind of thing. Like, literally just freaked out for no reason. (laughs) I know. It wasn't like he was a freaking like murderer. Yeah. Yeah. It It was very weird. Yes. Yes. Jump the gun a little bit on that one. Well, I, I mean, drama. <laughs> right. Good God. <laughs> but that night, Ron and Pat actually were a little nervous because they're like, well, now we know this secret. What if she were to come back and try and kill us because we now know something and can give her up, essentially? Yeah. I mean, I would feel the same way. A little bit. You're friends with this person, but now they just told you a secret that they were probably hoping to take to the grave. But yeah. they could tell you were already figuring things out and seeing things. So she probably thought that she didn't have a choice. So I would feel the same way. I mean, what the hell? Yeah, like why trust us with this kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. Pat says that she really didn't want to believe it. I mean, at first she was like, I can't believe something like this. But then things just kept popping up, more and more things that really made them 100% believe that Barbara Dayton is D.B. Cooper. Barbara started actually giving them details of the jump. Yeah. Like she hand wrote it to them. It looked like, I mean, they were showing us photos of these handwritten letters of like in detail how she did the jump. She said that she made it from 10,000 feet with a 9,000 foot free fall. So she didn't open her parachute until a thousand feet. And she said that the plane was going about 220 miles an hour There was about 30 mile per hour winds from the Southwest. And she stated that she strapped the money around her race to use as a depth finder. And I'm like, how? Yeah, I was a bit confused about that as well, except for now that I now that you mention it, I'm thinking it must have obviously hung lower than her legs. So she could at least have an idea of when she felt that give when it would hit the ground, how far she had before her feet would hit the only thing I could think of. Yeah. And I was thinking maybe because obviously when you're higher up in the atmosphere, the air is thinner. Yeah. So like as you're coming down, it starts getting heavier. So it's starting to like, I don't know. We might sound like idiots. If someone can explain this to us in more detail, that would be great. The only so, finders I know about are fish depth finders. Yeah, me too. And even those I still don't understand. Well, yeah. <laughs> and that that is literally what I thought of. But I'm like, you're in the air. So it's, it has to be something different. So there has to be something Around that. Yeah. But she also described the dynamite, too. And they had asked her if it was real. And she said that she never does anything phony. Yeah. So that it was. Barbara tells them that she landed in a field near Woodburn, Oregon, changed her clothes, put a blonde wig on, and was gone. Yeah. And no one would be the wiser because now she's a woman. Yep. And not a man in a suit with glasses on. I mean, truly, nobody would have stopped her. Right. I mean, if it was Barbara Dayton, 
that is probably the most clever thing I can think of. Right. You know, because if it was a man that was still a man, it can be hard to hide your features. You still have short hair. You might still wear suits. I mean, it it can be easier to identify you. But if you're actually a man that turned into a woman and just, you know, went back to living your life as a woman, no one would think twice about it. Right. You know what I mean? So now we're back at the night of the jump. Mm -hmm. And we see some on-screen text saying that the Northwest Orient Flight 305 departs Portland at 2.50 p.m. on a 37-minute flight to Seattle. Mm -hmm. So we're not up in the air for long. Right. The co-pilot, William, comes on and says that, you know, once the flight was in the air, Florence came into the cockpit with the note with the list of demands that D.B. Cooper had given her. Mm -hmm. And the list of demands were $200,000 in negotiable currency. He wanted four parachutes. He wanted a fuel truck standing by for when they landed. And no fuzz, Mm -hmm. meaning no police. (laughs) I thought it was interesting, the four parachutes. Like, obviously, before we watched the rest of the documentary, but I was like, who needs four? I mean, I definitely would have asked for more than one, I think. (gasps) Two, I would think, just as a backup. Like, I don't know how parachutes work either. Can you wear both of them at the same time? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that works, but I'm like, four? Yeah. That would seem heavy, because they can't be light. Parachutes can't be that light. I no, they're a backpack. Yes, exactly. And they're huge. Heavy, something heavy in them, you know? (laughs) You remember playing with them in gym class? Those things were, that was heavy. Yeah, I can't imagine. Well, and so William says that when they saw that the four parachutes were being part of the demand, he was worried that they were going to take the crew with him. Yeah. And just kind of crash the plane. Yeah, right. He was nervous at this point. So he calls out on a discreet frequency to ground to the ground company, letting them know what was going on. And the FBI was involved immediately. I love that shit. Like a discreet frequency that they're using to like get a hold of the police and the FBI. I think that is just the fucking coolest shit ever. Oh, yeah. It's totally like sending up a bat signal. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I love it. So we meet Bob Furman. Now, he's a retired FBI agent, but he says that at this point he's at FBI headquarters, wherever they are, Mm -hmm. Seattle, maybe. And he says that, you know, it's being announced over the PA system there that they have a hijacking. And I also kind of giggled because I'm like, nobody has PA systems anymore. <laughs> I and I was like, I knew what that meant. <laughs> yeah. But my daughter yeah. would be like, what's a PA yeah, system? Yeah, what is that? Yeah. yeah. She's like, what do you mean? It's not Siri. <laughs> so I was just like, OK, awesome. So they announced it over the PA system. His boss comes running in and grabs him and says, we need to go to the airport right now. You're driving. Mm-hmm. No plan. I mean, they had no plan at all at this point. They had no idea what they were doing. Well, to be honest, like what William had said, the pilot, you know, their normal hijackings weren't like scary. It wasn't life threatening. Yeah. Where this one now, there's a bomb. There's a full flight of people. Yeah. They're not just looking to go get some rum and some cigars. And it's hard to help people when they're in the sky. Right. You know what I mean? It's not like you can pull them over or, yeah. you know, it's it's not like you can surround them. So it's like, how do you try and save those passengers that are in the sky and get this situation figured out so at least they can get to the ground and hopefully without the perpetrator knowing. Yeah, because it's crazy. It could it could end up real bad real quick. Oh, it totally could. So at this point, with no plan, they just kind of have the plane in what they call like a holding pattern, mm-hmm. which is basically if you've ever been on a plane where oh, you're not horrible. able to land right away, you just mm-hmm. kind of like circle the airport. <laughs> yeah. We had to do that one time because of a storm that we was did happening. Too. So we were flying above the storm. I will say it was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Oh, because well, we looking down, you could see the storm. Oh, for sure. We were terrified because really? they could not plow 
the runway fast enough for us to land and we almost ran out of gas. They're like, well, we have no choice but to go down. So we had to go down and like literally they were still trying to shovel the snow out so we could actually land and not skid off the the runway. Was that here in Minneapolis? Yes. It was so terrifying. So scary because we, I mean, you could smell burning rubber. I mean, they definitely needed new tires after that on, on this plane. It was so scary. And my daughter was with us. We had actually, we were coming from California, from Hawaii. And it oh. was in February. So terrible snowstorm season here. We didn't even think about it when we finally got home. But yeah, oh, we yeah. had a circle for like a half an hour. They're like, well, we're now going to have to go down because we're about out of gas and we don't want to run out up here. So we're right. going down. Brace yourself and get your seatbelt on. I'm yep. like, oh, dear God, I'm holding on to my seat. You know, I'm terrified. Oh. So scary. That is scary. Oh my gosh. So scary. Ours was so not like that. We were <laughs> going to Florida. Yeah. Where there was nothing like that, but there was a thunderstorm going on. Oh, sure. Right sure, sure. above the airport. That so would be cool to see. It was honestly, I remember it being really like to be able to look really down on fucking it. cool mm-hmm. and see like lightning and stuff mm-hmm. while you're down there. I don't mm-hmm. know. Of course, I was a teenager. So at the time I was right. like, this is awesome. <laughs> now I'd be like, oh my God. Yeah, I'd be freaking out. Next, we see some on-screen text that says that the Northwest Orient Flight 305 lands in Seattle at 5.45 p.m. Now, upon landing, William tells us that the money and the parachutes were brought on board and given to D.B. Cooper. So at this point, all of the passengers are allowed to get off the plane now that he has the money. Yep. So passengers unload. He gets the money brought to him. He stays on the plane. That's that. The funny thing about this situation to me is that Not a single passenger on the plane had any idea until that moment that they had been hijacked. Right. right. They truly thought it was just a normal flight. Well, and the pilot was even telling them that they were having mechanical issues. Yep. Right. So, I mean, they were none the wiser. And it was like, you know, a non-emergency type of mechanical issue. So they were like, oh, yeah, whatever. We're just flying around. And they had to land for whatever reason, but had no clue that they were or could be in danger. Until they land and realized that they were several miles away from where they kind of should have been. Right. So Mm -hmm. they had a bus come out to kind of pick them all up to shuttle them over to where they needed to be. Oh, my gosh. Super weird, right? To be a fly on that wall. For real. Holy shit. Yeah. We're now in Seattle, Washington, and we're on suspect number three, L.D. Cooper. And we meet Marla Cooper, who takes us back to 1971 to our grandmother's home in Oregon just a couple days before Thanksgiving where her uncles L.D. and Dewey were there with her. She follows her uncles out into the woods, hanging out with them. She adored her uncles very much, especially L.D. She had a lot of admiration for him. And they're talking about something. They were plotting. They said that they were going to be going hunting tomorrow morning. And she knew, I mean, most kids kind of know when you're not fully telling them the truth. Oh, totally. And she knew that they weren't telling her the full truth. So she kept probing for answers. She kept trying to, you know, nudge them to, to tell her what's really going on. Yeah. And they didn't, of course. They were just talking about a, a turkey hunt or they were, you know, joking with her. They're going on a turkey hunt of, of some, some sort. They pull up in the driveway the next morning, both of her uncles. She runs up to their car and LD is in the passenger seat, nearly unconscious, in a bloodied white T-shirt. Her dad is telling her to go inside because he runs out too. She doesn't. She yeah. stays out there. And so she's hearing this conversation that her uncle Dewey is having with her dad. And he basically tells him, well, we did it. 
We hijacked the airplane. We're rich. Our money problems are now over. After this confrontation, her dad realized that Marla was still outside. Yeah, she did not listen. She didn't listen. And so her dad swore her to secrecy at eight years old, basically telling her that it was life or death. You can't tell anyone about this. Like, can we not be the type of people who put that stress on our fucking children? Are you kidding me? That is putting so much stress on your child for the rest of their life until they say something. Can we just not do that? Yeah. What the fuck? Seriously. And it's one thing if it's a secret that the child can't really talk about outside of the home, but maybe you're open about it in the house so you can talk about it and kind of work through those things. Right. But no, this sounds like once it was done, it was done. And she actually goes on later on to say that she suppressed most of these memories. Oh, yeah. She kind of forgot about them because it was just so ingrained in her mind. We don't talk about it. Isn't that just nuts? Yeah. Like she actually kind of forgot about it, but. I'll be honest. I wow. wish my daughter listened this well. Because <laughs> holy cow. I know. I'm right there with you. <laughs> We're back to the night of the hijacking. Now, with the money on board through on-screen text, we see that D.B. Cooper demands the plane fly to Mexico City. It departs at 7.36 p.m. via a planned fuel stop in Reno, Nevada, which I'm guessing was that fuel truck that he had demanded in his list, right? Right. Because they were only supposed to be going a short distance on their original flight. So they probably don't put as much fuel in there as they probably would need, right, for a long flight? I don't know. I don't know. Do they fill it up every time? Who knows? I mean, (laughs) I would just assume that they would because of the case of if they aren't able to land right away, then they have to circle that they have extra. But who knows? I'm sure. Yeah, that would make sense. I should actually ask my dad. He used to fuel jet engines for the Air Force. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Ask your dad. Fill us in. I'm going to have to ask my dad. (laughs) Why do I not do this before? (laughs) So we're back with pilot William. He says that, you know, they got rid of the passengers and two thirds of the stewardesses that were on the plane. So really, the two pilots and Tina are the only three that stayed with D.B. Cooper. I know. And she wasn't allowed to leave. Like, no, she wasn't allowed. to. She was the one that was sitting with D.B. Cooper. So he didn't want her to leave. I'd be like. Fuck me. I know. What the fuck? (laughs) I know. And she's only like 21, 22 at the time. Right, right. So the whole time that she's back there, though, they do have that like phone intercom kind of situation. And she keeps it off the hook and tries to keep the cockpit aware through their conversation about what's going on. I love it. So smart. I know. I know. She's she was beyond. She was like beyond her time. Absolutely. Right. And so calm. Yeah, she's so calm. She was able to keep her composure. I mean, and I think a lot of that has to do with just the way that women were treated back then. They weren't allowed to be emotional in public. That's true. Especially if you were in a professional setting like this, where it's your job. Because women, traditionally, didn't work outside of the home. Right. So you had to really put on a face. That makes sense. Totally. So she says that, you know, she's talking with him through the whole thing. And she could kind of feel his anxiety rising as the time was moving closer and closer to where they should be. Now, William says that one of the demands was that they had to fly at 10,000 feet. So he gets up there, gets to 10,000 feet. He's also told to keep the flaps down and the gear down. Not at all sure what that means, I'll be honest. But my guess is it has something to do with if someone's going to jump from the plane, they don't want to hit those items. So I don't know. That immediately made me think like this person knows a lot about planes. Yeah. Normal passengers don't know that kind of stuff. So unless 
you know a lot about planes and possibly are a pilot yourself, you probably wouldn't know those things. Right. If you were just an amateur wanting to hijack a plane, you probably wouldn't know anything like that. Yeah. And William says as soon as he hears these demands, it was obvious this person was going to jump. Mm-hmm. And this is a commercial flight. So this isn't just like a regular plane that you jump out of. No, it's not. Yeah. He knew this guy definitely knew about planes enough or had been jumping often enough that he knew to keep those things out of the way. Oh, my gosh. It, the thought of jumping out of an airplane is so terrifying to me. I couldn't even imagine. Not my thing. <gasps> no. Not my no. thing. Oh, my nope. gosh. I, I know. I mm-mm. I like rides when you're like strapped in like amusement park. Rides. Totally. I can do those. Love it. You you feel secure. You're yep. in place. I mean, it's still a little scary. I, I don't like even like the rides thrill. where my feet are dangling. Yeah, those those are. I mean, again, it's a little bit of a thrill. It's still scary. But like the thought of literally free, free. falling <sighs> and not knowing if the parachute's going to open. No, thank you. No, I'll pass. I mean, I think now I know why he grabbed four because I would need four. <laughs> One just on each case. limb, you know, just to make sure. <laughs> At that point, D.B. Cooper sends Tina up front to the cockpit. And William says that as soon as she walked into the cockpit, he had never been so glad to see another person in his life. Mm -hmm. He was so happy that she was safe. He just seems like such a Mr. Rogers. I love him. I loved him, too. So Cooper actually stays in the back of the plane, and he's going to use the back stairwell to jump from. Now, at one point, though, he's having some issues. Because he calls up to the cockpit over the loudspeaker, I can't get the stairs down. They won't come down. So obviously, there's got to be some kind of a mechanism that keeps them up while they're flying. Right. And I almost think like nowadays, they probably don't. You probably can't put them down when you're in the air. I mean, to me, it would just be logical that they wouldn't work. Right. When you're in the air, they'd only be able to like get into position when the plane is stopped or not turned on or something as a safety feature, you know? I mean, I guess I don't know. I guess if you need to abort, but most people don't abort by jumping out of airplanes. You no, know usually I mean? they'll you try can. to land the plane and then you yeah. get out of the plane. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it was very weird. But it kind of sounds like William knew enough. And I don't know if it had to do with maybe how fast he was going or maybe at like what position the plane was in that it kind of also allowed that not to open. Because mm-hmm. I'm also kind of thinking of just like, the acceleration and all of that the, would the just wind. keep it right, right, you know, in place. Like it wouldn't allow it to open up just because of all the force yes. coming yep. in on it. That makes sense. It does. But again, who knows? Fucking math, man. <laughs> this is math. Why do we do this to ourselves? This is why we drink while we do math. I know. Seriously. <laughs> it's the only time that makes sense. <laughs> so he says at one point, he kind of eases off his acceleration a bit and the stairs finally release. They hear a loud noise, feel a bump, and realize that it was the back stairs coming back up and closing. So at this point, they're like, he's gone. So they alert anyone who's listening, we've lost our passenger. Right. And they even had to like mark their screens as to like where their location was. Mm -hmm. But again, my immediate thought of that was you're going 200 some odd miles per hour. You can, it can literally happen in one second. And how far away are you now? Yeah. They're not following you anymore. You know what I mean? So yeah. to me, it's just you try to do your best, but how is it accurate? Right. How they, can it be accurate? Yeah. They All they could do was kind of mark where they were at, where they think they're at. Yes. Because again, they're in the dark. Right. And mark what time they heard that sound. Right. To give themselves a bit of an idea. And exactly. again, a bunch of math comes in. We're, we're not going there. Yeah. No. 
not? not going there. So Bob Furman, that retired FBI agent, comes back on and he just says that, you know, during this time, it was kind of a weird time for Seattle because they had been known as a really big Boeing city. Mm-hmm. And Boeing is that huge airline. I mean, they yes. I believe they manufacture all the airplanes or yeah, like the, the most Boeing, of them. the Boeing aircrafts. Yes. Yeah. And he says that Seattle went through what they called the Great Boeing Bust, where they had laid off something like 60,000 people. And it was just hugely devastating to their economy. So he kind of feels like whoever was involved in this may have been part of that Mm -hmm. and almost kind of pissed off because he had said to Tina at one point on the flight that he didn't have like a grudge against that airline, Northwest Orient, but that he just had a grudge. Right. So kind of connecting puzzle pieces and here. And what was it, right? What was right. the grudge what that was he the had? Grudge? Was it this? Did it go back to just Boeing in general, shutting down and all these people lost their jobs? Was that where it stemmed from? We'll never know. Yeah, we'll never know. We meet Jeffrey Gray, and he's actually the author of Skyjack, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper. He tells us that poverty during these times when the jump took place was rampant. And a lot of people in the Pacific Northwest were losing their jobs, like you stated. Yeah. That big Boeing bust that happened. A lot of people had lost their jobs. And D.B. Cooper, you know, had got away scot-free. I mean, he was almost like a hero to these yeah. people because they're so pissed off at the situation that they're in and this huge layoff and no one has jobs, no one has any money. And this D.B. Cooper stuck it to the man got $200,000 and got away with it and never got caught. Yeah, you know? kind of so, like the modern-day Robin Hood. Yes, it, yeah. was, it was interesting because we got this little montage of people explaining that, I mean, he was like a hero to them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, people were rooting for him to get away and get away with it. Exactly. Yeah. They take us to Washougal, Washington, and we meet Jerry Thomas. I wrote him down as a woods walker. I mean, they don't say anything really outside yeah. of that. Because he talks about how... For 31 years, that's what he did. He walked all in the woods, all over the place. That's what he loved to do. That's what he did. Mm-hmm. And he said it's some of the roughest terrain in the world. He he tells us that you're not going to be looking for a body. You're going to be looking for a parachute at this yeah. point. It's been so many years. It's going to be very, very hard to trace down a body, but you're going to be looking for the parachute. And he knows D.B. Cooper died that night. Yeah. He has no doubts in his mind. He died that night. He's gone. He tells us that he was in the military for 20 years in the special forces, lived off the grid even for 10 years. And he knows that someone would not be able to survive that kind of jump being placed in in woods that are that vast, you know, in the dark. Exactly. Exactly. Because they were I think they were saying that it's 20 to 25 miles of woods. Yep. So it's a lot. It's, It's very large, very big. And if you don't know your way around, exactly, you're going to you're going to get lost and you'll die. Yeah. If you didn't already die from the fall, the fall. Right. We meet Frank Montoya Jr. And he's a retired FBI special agent in charge in Seattle from 2014 to 2016. And he tells us about Richard McCoy, who did a similar thing where he jumped out of an airplane and was able to survive. So this brings us to suspect number four, Richard Floyd McCoy. This takes us to Salt Lake City, Utah, where we meet Ben and Jawirden. Good job. Is that good? I was wondering <laughs> if you were going to get it. Yep. <laughs> I practiced a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> now, Ben was in the National Guard with Richard Floyd McCoy. 
Ben tells us that Richard was a Mormon, he was adventurous, and he was a group leader in Vietnam. He received quite a few medals while in Vietnam and ended up being Ben's roommate. And Ben tells us that he talked a lot about hijacking. Yeah. He was basically saying that they would actually act out scenarios with one another of how they would do it if they ever decided to do it. Oh, sure. Now, Ben needed to just let us know that he was never serious. It was, you know, just for fun, messing around, just trying to think of how they would actually do it to get away with it, right? Well, yeah, because in their job, I mean, they're in the military. They had planned raids and ambushes before. Yeah. So they yeah. did have kind of that that mentality of mm-hmm. how would you go about it and how would you do it without being caught? How would you be successful in right. doing it? So I just put down, they played the game, how would you do it? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Makes yeah. sense. We, we've all kind of done something like kinda that, like right? Kind of like the game we play of how would you get away with murder? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Which I think we talk about a couple times a week. Yes. <laughs> we get some on-screen text that states, in 1972, nearly five months after Cooper's disappearance, Richard Floyd McCoy hijacked a Boeing passenger jet flying out of Denver, Colorado. We meet Nick O'Hara, who's a retired FBI agent in Norfolk, Virginia. He tells us that McCoy, who was actually using the name James Johnson, boarded a flight to Colorado, then to L.A. He came up with a note, a handgun, a grenade, and demanded a half a million dollars. He also requested four parachutes. Yeah. Same instructions as Dan Cooper. Now, once he was airborne, he was now aware of how to redeploy the rear air stairs because like in the D.B. Cooper jump, he had the stair issue. Yeah, he stumbled a little bit on that. Exactly. So now if Richard McCoy is D.B. Cooper... He now knows how to do that and how to fix that that problem. He bails out and lands somewhere near Provo. Ben comes back and tells us that he was talking to his wife and he said, I wonder if that's McCoy. And he immediately called the FBI. I love these people. (laughs) I know. They're like, first of all, what is the number to the FBI? There was no 911 back then. So, like, <laughs> how do you just call the FBI? Oh, I don't gosh. know how to call the FBI. No, that you can't Google it. It's not in a phone book. My I'm going to do it right now. Because <laughs> <laughs> now I'm curious. <laughs> oh, I just found that to be so hilarious. These people waste no time at all. They're, like, calling the FBI the second I see a news report, the second I, you know, hear anything, FBI is being called. Well, and honestly, I mean, I just Googled it, and it said, like, if you'd like to contact us, and then it gives a list of places to contact, including different field offices for every major city in the country. Wow. So that's Google. They didn't have any of that no. shit back then. Was that in their yellow pages? Or maybe they're like FBI field office? Maybe they state they called the FBI, but maybe it was actually their local police or something. Maybe. Or their state police or something. Or here's how to submit a tip to the FBI, if, in case you're wondering. 1-800-CALL-FBI. Maybe it's always been that. I don't know. Interesting. Weird. Now, after Ben called the FBI, they went and searched Richard's house and found half a million dollars in the attic minus $20. That he had used to buy lunch. He used it to buy lunch. He was hungry. I mean, what what can you do? Back then, that was a good lunch because, I mean, $20 would get you a flight. (laughs) Right. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) They state that he did not resist and was arrested that very day. Now, McCoy ended up talking to Ben after this happened and says, you know, some of that money was for you. And Ben says he felt like he betrayed him. I'm like, really, Ben? 
You did. You did betray him. And now you feel bad because you could have gotten some of that money. (laughs) I mean, really. I found that to be pretty comical because you could immediately tell Ben's like, ooh. Well, he said, if I'd have known. Yeah. If I would have known, I wouldn't have called the FBI. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like, well, if he's going to get away with all this money, that's not going to happen. Oh, wait. Shit. Part of that was supposed to be for me. Oh, damn it. God, I must (laughs) have missed that letter. (laughs) Now, Nick O'Hara comes back and he says that he showed us a sketch of D.B. Cooper and a photo of Richard McCoy side by side. And there is really an uncanny resemblance. Oh, yeah. It's very similar. Now, the only thing that I had to say about that is that the sketch that we see, it's actually a pretty decent sketch, especially from back in that time. It's very generic, though. Seriously, I wrote down, looks like it could be almost anybody. Yes. I mean... The thinning hair on the top, and it's, he's wearing glasses, so it's not like you can tell what his eyes look like. And like he's just like a thin man. I mean, it, it, there's nothing really that stands out no. about him. So that's why I think so many people think they know who it is because he looks like so many of these people. I oh, mean, yeah. he really does. Oh yeah, yeah. There is nothing striking about him. Not at all. Again, we're back to the night of the jump, and we're back with co-pilot William, and he says that when they finally land in Reno. They hug each other mm-hmm. once they're off the plane. Like they're just so relieved to have that safety net of oh, no longer sure. being up in the air under the control of somebody with a bomb. Well, right? and to know that they're not going to be blown up. My God. I mean, that's right. probably all they were thinking until they could actually land on the ground again. Yeah. You know, you know what I just thought about? Where did the bomb go? He took it with him. OK, how could you hold a bag of money, a briefcase bomb and four parachutes? Where did that shit go? This was kind of my, like, thought. Okay. He holds the briefcase, ties the duffel bag of money around him in some fashion, and then only took one parachute. I don't believe he took all the parachutes. I just can't fathom that how that would work. Yeah. You know? The only thing I could think of, now that I just, now that you said that, (laughs) you know when he's stumbling with the stairs? Mm -hmm. What if he is dropping a parachute out every few minutes mm-hmm. so it, if they find it it looks like that could have been where he landed sure almost like breadcrumbs right absolutely i don't know yeah the things that i think about right. when we're here talking about yes. it yes. none of that occurred to me when i was watching the documentary <laughs> i love it now tina goes on to say that she didn't even fully like realize what had all happened until she was being put in the back seat of an fbi agent's car and she just Burst into tears. Right. I mean, that's a lot of pressure to be under. And I'm thinking she was a little in shock. I think you, your body goes into a little bit of shock at that point because you're in survival mode, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're in an airplane, there's not really many places that you can go. So you probably have to try to calm yourself down, rationalize it a little bit, and be almost in like a different zone or like, you yeah. know, like an out-of-body experience kind of thing, I'm sure. So like when she actually felt safe, that's when like she came back to her senses and you know, was able to actually have these emotions that she probably wanted to have up in the airplane. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe the adrenaline just wouldn't even let her get there. Right, exactly. During a press conference, they're actually kind of asking the crew, you know, did you try to stop him in any way? And they're like, nope. Like, they didn't make any attempt (laughs) to intercept any of his demands. Oh, no. Or his endgame. They just said he was always polite. Like, he wasn't being an asshole. And I think it was safety first, right? I mean, they didn't want casualties. They didn't want the plane to go down. They didn't want it to be blown up, you know? And they weren't used to this. They were used to hijacking that were fun. We're going to Cuba. We're going to get drunk, you know? Like, like, literally, it was like a It was like a party. Yeah, it wasn't something, like, they had to worry about. So now this was like, 
holy shit, let's listen to everything that he tells us. Let's do whatever he says so we don't die. Exactly. Now, this sparked what they call Norjack. It was the biggest manhunt the Portland group had ever seen. Mm -hmm. FBI, Army, police, and even Boy Scouts were all in on this five-mile-long, one-mile-wide area of terrain that they suspect he would have landed. They didn't know a name, obviously. They didn't know what he looked like. And he had a huge head start on all of them. Like, what the fuck were they even doing? I know. What did they say? 40 hours? Yeah, they, he had a 40-hour head start on them. I remember them saying that the weather wasn't the best, obviously, that night. But 40 hours? That's a long time. It is a long time. I think probably in that time, though, it probably took that long to get all of the coordinates figured out and try to determine sure. where they think he might be. And probably get all the people that you need, right? Right. Yeah. Get Because they it's not as easy as throwing out a Facebook blast. Right. Right. So, yeah, it probably took a little bit more time. We're now in Mount Rainier, Washington, and we meet Bruce Smith. Now, he's the author of D.B. Cooper and the FBI, and he's a bit of a character. I mean, he seems like a really smart author, but he's kind of like holed up in like a little camper, like out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, truly, he he said he even wrote the book in that camper. So he's committed. Now, he says that the plane crew didn't know where they were when Cooper jumped, only the time of day that it happened, which was around like 8.13 p.m. Mm -hmm. So using flight patterns, they found a 25-mile area of woods like we had talked about earlier. And like we also said, he had that 40-hour lead on investigators. So did they they really think they were going to find him? I don't know. Well, and maybe they thought he wouldn't have survived. I think maybe that was their original mentality is that they're going to find a body. Yeah. They're not going to find a human being walking around. It's just going to be a dead body. Well, how wrong they were. Well, the weird thing is, is that it sounded like, depending on who you spoke to, everybody kind of thought, yeah, he could have died, but he could have lived. Like, Mm -hmm. they weren't like 100%. Because people have lived before. In that time, we saw Richard McCoy. He jumped out. Right. He lived. Only five months after, he survived. Right. So the FBI even went so far as to, you know, coming over to different passengers that had been on that plane to their homes multiple times a week for about a year with different composite sketches, trying to see if they would remember anything else. Mm -hmm. But they didn't. Well, it's hard. I mean, it was dark in there. He was wearing sunglasses and he looks generic. There is nothing that stands out. There's no birthmarks. There's no tattoos. There's, you know, nothing that would visibly be different from someone else. Right. You know? Yeah. Now, back in 1971, the FBI were kind of considered to be like the premier police force Mm -hmm. out there, right? Like they were the best of the best. Right. And for good reason. They generally always got their guy. Well, yeah. And I... I still think that today. I well, mean, yeah. if there's a big issue or if there's like a manhunt, you get the FBI involved. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, that's the first thing I think of. So totally makes sense. Yeah. But the problem is, is that they actually lost a lot of evidence about this case. For one, being the cigarette butts that he had been smoking on oh, the plane. Oh, this infuriates me. I know. At one <laughs> point, they had them in their possession. Now, at that time, they couldn't have really done a whole lot with them. Right. Aside from maybe being like, oh, this is a specific brand and, oh, somebody I know smokes this brand. Yeah. Whatever the case may be. Nowadays, they could have tested it for DNA, where back then they didn't have that. I know. Even the FBI claims they don't know what happened to them. So, you know, they talked to Frank Montoya and he's like, I have no idea. I mean, someone must have just threw it out, not (sighs) thinking that it would ever lead to anything. And back then, I 
don't even know how far advanced they were in any sense of DNA. I don't. Right. I mean, were they still doing just like blood? Like, oh, your blood is B positive. I, and I would think so. You know, I, they might not even have been doing that. I don't even know because we know there's a lot of serial killers in the 70s and 80s that never got caught because of the DNA issues. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's crazy. They also said that there were fingerprints recovered on the plane, but like nothing happened with those. Right. And they don't even know how many. Mm-hmm. Basically, they're saying lots of mistakes were made. And eight and a half years after the jump, they still had nothing. But then in 1980, a kid finds three bundles of cash on the beach of the Columbia River in Washington. It was about $3,000 that he found. The serial numbers, when compared, matched the numbers to the ransom money. Oh, this gives me like chills. I just love this kind of shit. It's so cool. It's so cool. (laughs) Bruce says that the money that was found was wet. It was soggy. It was highly compressed. So he believes something really heavy had to have been on top of it to get it to that point. Because when you were trying to even like pull the bills apart, like they were coming off in chunks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't usable anymore but the serial numbers match so they knew that it was the money from that night i mean they're really crumpled i mean very small they had holes all over them i mean there really wasn't much left of them so it almost looked like they'd been sitting in water or under something that was eating them or you know had something heavy on them for sure yeah and this was 45 miles south of the supposed landing site from the jump we're back in pensacola florida with joe weber with suspect number one, Dwayne Weber. Now, she had actually been interviewed by their local news and kind of told her story. She said that there was just too many pieces of the puzzle that fit. So they had actually found fake IDs in his wallet after he passed away. Many of them. Yeah. Like four, five, six, all different names. His photo. His photo and all of them. But all different names. And right after the crime, Dwayne actually purchased two cars in cash. We hear from Tim Collins and he tells us that he only made about $1,000 that year in total. So there would be no way he would have been able to afford to pay cash for two cars that year. Right. With with the money that he made. Also so crazy. Isn't that weird? <laughs> to think that people made such little money back then. Oh, yeah. And well, I mean, because everything costed nothing. I know. You know what I mean? It's so weird to think. It is weird. Dwayne had actually handed over his will in the hospital to Joe, and it had a safety deposit key taped to it. I think that there was only one they said that they were able to get into, which I found interesting. The one that they could actually open, they found a magazine. I couldn't catch the name. I think it was Soldier of Fortune. Okay, and on the inside, they turned to an inside page that said, The Man Who Held Secrets. And immediately to them, they thought, oh, yeah. Well, that's Dwayne. He held so many secrets. They give us Dwayne Weber, Dan Cooper, and John Collins as his names. Yep. Now, a little side note. Did you notice that Joe Weber, like, jumps up on her countertop and just sits on her countertop, like, in the corner of her, her kitchen? Did you notice that? No. So I found it so funny because she's an older lady. Yeah. And I do this all the time in my house. I love jumping on my counters and sitting on my counters. I'm like, okay, so that shit never goes away. No, no, like, I have an aunt who still does it. Yeah, like it, it's just ingrained in your, yep. your body forever that you're always going to jump and hike yourself up on a counter and sit on a counter. I just thought it was funny because she's so old and I just 
I mean, not so old. She's pretty old. Well, she's in her 60s. And then she's still able to do that. Just yeah. like hike herself yeah, up just, and like, sit on the counter. <laughs> I like when she goes, I'm just going to step outside and smoke some of this real quick. Oh, my God. She had such a smoker voice, too. Immediately when I heard her speak for the first time, I'm like, she's been smoking her whole life. Yeah. And you can tell when that interview she had, the news interview she had when she was younger. Yep. Her voice didn't sound like that. No. At all. I mean, it definitely changed over the time from being a smoker. Oh, sometimes but, it makes you know, me miss it. I know. I know, girl. Uh, We've been there. Beauty school days. Yes. Uh, <laughs> now, we get some on-screen text, and we're in Washington State in August of 1979, six months before the Cooper ransom money is found. Joe tells us that they actually had a convention to go to in Seattle, and Dwayne told her that he wanted to go a few days early and showed her a lot of things, and she says that she never asked questions. Yeah. And they stopped somewhere not too far from Lake Merwin. And he pointed out and said that's where Cooper walked out of the woods. But she didn't know who Cooper was. So they just went on their merry way. I'm like, can you ask a question, Joe? I think she thought he was just being like nostalgic, like taking her through like his childhood days. And maybe at one point he had mentioned his friend Cooper. And she's like, fuck, I wasn't listening. That's what I got from it. I I know she doesn't ask a question. I would have been like, oh, who's Cooper? Yep. Just give me a refresh here, bud. Yep. Like, just a quick refresh. I, ask one question, Joe. She marries the man and knows <laughs> nothing about his past. She said, even in the I beginning, know. that she's like, nope, I never asked because he was always nice to me. I'm like, what? Uh, Joe. Good Joe. grief. What is going on I mean, here? I guess even Ted Bundy had a girlfriend. That's true. <laughs> so Joe's memory man comes back, Tim Collins, and we're in a car with him. And the crew's kind of asking him some questions. And, and, Tim tells us that Joe has the memories, but doesn't know the significance. So he's there to basically help her put the memories into some sort of order or some sort of relevance, really. But to me, it's still a little sketchy because, like, what if he can make up his own assumptions when he wasn't ever there? So Tim is a little leery to me. I'm not a huge believer in him quite yet. But Joe tells us that that day, they had stopped at a little place by the water that had a motel called the Red Lion. They stayed overnight. Everything was great. The next morning, he tells her that he needs to go somewhere. He leaves at 7 a.m. and doesn't come back until right before checkout, which, you know, I'm assuming is like 11, 12 o'clock. Yeah, right? something like that. And he needs to shower. She says that he was dirty. It looked like he'd been digging in something because his hands were all dirty. And he was wearing a suit. Right. Yeah. Or like nice like at dress, least pants, dress pants. Yeah. Which was weird. I think that's what they wore back then. I don't think people people no, yeah. definitely did not leave their house the way that we leave our houses now. No. Yeah, I mean, talk to an <laughs> older generation and they are like disgusted with how we present ourselves. <laughs> and I get it sometimes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not above leaving my house in my pajamas occasionally. Yeah. But the level of comfort some people have oh, in yeah. leaving their house and being out in public is a bit embarrassing for me. Oh, Yes. No fucks are given with some no, people. No. None. And, you're, and you're not allowed to give a shit about it either anymore. No, not at all. Now, they got into the car. They're getting ready to leave. And she asked him what was in this paper bag that she saw in the car. And he told her that it was trash. What he ended up doing, he ended up taking it out of the vehicle, going down to the river, and he threw it in the river. And she thought it was weird because she didn't see him throw it in the river, but he's just standing there. Yeah, like staring. Staring at the river. And he didn't do this kind of stuff. So this was completely out of the character. ordinary, out of character for sure. 
we find out that, yeah, he threw it in there. I was just watching it float away. Now, Tim Collins comes back and he he kind of puts this story together of how he thinks all of this kind of happened. Dwayne left that morning to go dig up the money. Most of it was in great condition, but some wasn't. So he threw those damaged bills into the water and then they showed up nine miles down the river at Tina Bar where that young man found the money. Yeah. And it makes sense when you're looking at the waterways. Yes. So he had he had put together like this waterways poster of where they thought D.B. Cooper would have actually landed and the water would have never made it up to that portion where this money was found just because of the way the current you know, kind of goes, it it would go completely the opposite direction. Yeah. Now they find this dredge layer in the sand because of course they're digging up the area where this money was found. Yeah, they want to see if there's more. Right, exactly. And they kind of want to see when it showed up there too to kind of get a timeline going. And there was a dredge layer that was from 1974 and the money was found above that. Now they did what you know, it's called like a sand analysis and and all this kind of stuff. Way too scientific for me to get into. But if you recall, the crime happened in 1971. So we know that the money didn't get there till well after or after 1974. Yeah. So this couldn't have happened if you fell and it, you know, just made its way there. It happened after that. Yeah. It had to have been put there. Exactly. Again, Tim was showing us the waterways and Joe's story made sense because where that motel was, if he would have actually thrown the money in there, it could have absolutely made it to where Tina Barr was and where the money was found. Absolutely. It totally made sense. Yeah. We're now in California and we're back to the story of suspect number two with Barbara Dayton, a.k.a. Robert Dayton. Mm -hmm. And we're talking to Rena Rudell. Now, Robert Dayton was actually her father. Mm-hmm. All right. So Barbara, Robert, however you want to refer to this person, Rena was their daughter. Yes. She says that her dad was like a cowboy and she's showing a ton of pictures of when he was younger. And he does looks he looks like a rugged cowboy. Yes, for sure. Kind of a guy. And she says that her mother was just always just infatuated with him, just thought he was so sexy. Mm-hmm. But as the years went on, Her mother had told her that he liked to wear women's clothing. Yeah. And I hear this a lot about this time. So I don't think it's that crazy to hear about. Right. But back then it kind of was. And so they would have like parties where they would play poker or play cards. And he would actually ask her mother if he could wear some of her clothes. And she'd be like, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah. You know, it's kind of awesome for her mother. Like most women, I feel like would find that weird, especially in that time frame, mm-hmm. and be like, you're not going out in public like that. And her mom was like, yeah, sure, go Whatever for it. You do. I mean, that's awesome. I love that so much. Yeah. So Rena goes on to say that after a while, she believes her parents actually became more friends versus lovers. Sure. Which, I mean, makes sense, right? Right. So Rena says that her brother had died back in 1975, and she hadn't seen her dad in a few years. Yeah. So at the funeral... He comes down, and that's the first time that Rena meets her dad as Barbara. During the whole conversation, he keeps calling himself a freak to her, and she just felt like that was sad. She didn't like hearing that. That's horribly sad. It is. And that at one point, her cousin had told her that her dad was D.B. Cooper. So we next meet Barb's sister-in-law and niece, Sharon Power, 
and Billy Dayton. Now, when the sketch came out of D.B. Cooper that kind of went, you know. Yes. And yes. nowadays would have gone viral. Yes, but the back then it was just sketch. everywhere. Yes. Yep. Barb's brother, Bill, saw it and was like, that's my brother. And he was terrified. Mm-hmm. He was not happy about it. And Sharon goes on to say he never spoke about it. So based on this information that Rena is told from her aunt and her cousin, I mean, it kind of made sense. Mm-hmm. Barb didn't show up to Thanksgiving that year in 1971 and usually always did. Yes. So she believes D.B. Cooper was her dad. Now we're back with Jeffrey Gray, the author of Skyjack, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper. And he says that with Barb Dayton, he thinks of all of the suspects, I mean, she had the guts, Mm -hmm. she had the ability, and she had nothing to lose. I mean, imagine being in the 70s and feeling like a man trapped in a woman's body. Right. If you jump and you don't die, I mean, that's a win, right? Right. Right. But if you jump and die, like, I mean, I think at that point, it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, and she had so much jumping experience. So this wasn't a first time. And she was a pilot herself, so she knew a lot about airplanes. Right. Yeah. Right. So Jeffrey goes on to say that Richard Floyd McCoy actually had the mental capacity to be D.B. Cooper and that he definitely understood skyjacking. Yeah, absolutely. He did it five months after. Right. And talked about it a lot. So Mm -hmm. I think it was one of those like he was just super fascinated by it. Mm -hmm. We now meet Bernie Rhodes. He's a retired chief probation officer with the Salt Lake City, Utah police. And we're in Seminole, Florida. And he basically says that the FBI believed that Richard Floyd McCoy lost the money on his first jump and then did the copycat hijacking five months later because he had lost the $200,000. Yeah, and he wanted to get the the money back. Yeah. Or get some more money, obviously. Yeah. What he said was interesting was that the duffel bag that was given to him was actually made so that it couldn't be closed, so that the money would fall out while you were jumping, which I can't imagine that he was, like, too stupid to see that. The thing I thought was weird, I'm like, he said it had no handles and it had no zipper on it. I'm like, that's not a fucking bag. Because no. he said it was a duffel bag. I'm like, what the hell? That's a kind pocket. Of- <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm like, what is that? I, that didn't make any sense to me. No. You know what I mean? very weird. It was, that was weird to me and very strange. Why wouldn't he have said something about that uh, yeah. before he jumped? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Weird. It was weird. really weird. Now, McCoy at the time was adamant that he was not D.B. Cooper. But he reacted emotionally to different pictures of Cooper yeah. that they would show him. You know, his mood and his personality would change. He refused to talk about it, kept saying that he was at home when that jump had occurred. However, through different pieces of evidence proving that he wasn't, they were able to find out that McCoy was actually in Las Vegas, Nevada, the day after the Cooper hijacking. So he wasn't at home in Provo. Like he said. Like he said he was. We then see some on-screen text saying that McCoy was sentenced to 45 years in prison for the 1972 copycat hijacking, but he busted out of jail like twice. <laughs> the first time he was gone for like a day, yep. they found him, brought him back. Then he busted out and was on the lam for a while. Yeah. So he was out and about. Agent Nick O'Hara, who we had talked about a little bit earlier, actually was the one who apprehended him that second time and ended up shooting him dead in a gunfight. Between the two of them. Wow. Because McCoy started firing shots and yeah, yeah. You're, you have to return them. And he basically said he had no feeling about it. No, I mean, he said, I did my job. I did what I was supposed to do. And that is, I mean, 
that is compartmentalizing at its best. I mean, he's still a human being. I mean, that would still mess me up, you know, even if it was my job and you killed someone. I mean, that just struck me. He's like, yep, I feel nothing. Yeah. Feel nothing about it at all. Yeah. He was probably a little bit ticked off at him and pissed off that he's been, he should be in prison and he's not, you know, and he's, they've now finally apprehended him and he's not coming easy kind of thing. So yeah, it makes sense, but still weird. Well, and he said it was a clean situation. It was, there was no question that Nick acted outside of his rights, you know, but yeah, it was interesting. We're now with Marla Cooper. And she says that in 2011, she met with an agent and decided to take her story public. She had passed a polygraph test at that time. She truly believes that L.D. Cooper, her uncle, was D.B. Cooper. She had never seen him after that day when she had come outside and seen him in the passenger seat of the car, Mm -hmm. bloody, unconscious. 25 years later, so she had been eight at the time, so add 25 to that, her dad tells her a story. And she goes on to ask, you know, whatever happened to Uncle L.D.? And her dad goes, well, he's probably still hiding from the FBI, the CIA, any mm-hmm. anybody. And she's like, why would he be hiding from the FBI? And her dad goes, well, he hijacked that airplane. You remember, you know what happened. This brought back all of her yeah. memories. She had basically suppressed them. Right. And she says, I know my uncle was D.B. Cooper. The camera then goes right to Joe Weber. And Joe says, I know my husband was D.B. Cooper. Yeah. <laughs> we then go to Bernie Rhodes and he says, McCoy, I don't know how you can dismiss all of the evidence. He was D.B. Cooper. Mm-hmm. And then we pan back to Pat and Ron Foreman, who both say Barb Dayton. Definitely. They believe she was D.B. Cooper. They never had a doubt in their mind. Yeah. Everyone knew who D.B. Cooper was and it was all their relative or friend or whoever it was. Yeah. Yeah. Now, who do you think it is? Do you think it's any of these four people? That's a good one. I don't feel like it's McCoy. Nope, me neither. It doesn't make sense. Why would he do it five months later? That just doesn't make sense. Well, and why don't they talk about where he was on the night of? Yeah, I don't think it was him. I feel like Barbara is really plausible. Barbara is very plausible to me as well. I That's who I'm kind of thinking. Joe's story can't really... I don't know. Her memory is really bad. She has a memory man. Dwayne, I mean, some of it made sense. A lot of it does make sense. But I'm like, what if it's all made up? I mean, it's so hard to trust her memory because she can't trust her own memory. You know what I mean? So that one was a little hard for me to believe. Yeah, I definitely don't feel like it's L.D. Cooper. No, there's just not enough. There's nothing there. There's not really a story there. I mean, he did something, but they could have done anything. They could have hijacked any plane, you know? Yeah. Uh, However, it would make a lot of sense if he had done it to have a getaway car once he landed. Well, and why was he gone for so many years and none of his family saw him again? You know, so. So, yeah, most plausible to me, I would say Barbara Dayton for sure. Yeah, I could see that. So Jeffrey Gray, the author for Skyjack, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper, says that at one point he had had access to FBI files and he felt like if he could get into those files, He'd be able to break this case. Right. Fresh eyes. You know, it's a whole new time. He's going to figure it out until he starts looking through the files. And it is tips from everyone and their mom across the Pacific Northwest Mm -hmm. and probably even the whole United States 
And everything just seemed so far-fetched. Oh, yeah. I mean, people were, it was like angry husbands, yeah. you know, like talking about their ex-wives. I mean, like. Everyone was D.B. Cooper. Everyone was D.B. Cooper. And like we had mentioned, the sketch looked like everybody. Yeah. They, they did even a photo montage of like all these random people. All the four suspects, of course, were on there. But like a bunch of random other even people Even some too. of the FBI agents. They yes. had some of their pictures on there and they looked just like him. <laughs> yes. It was way too generic. Yes, absolutely. Way too generic. Now, Bruce Smith, the author for D.B. Cooper and the FBI, says if he was an American hero, he just went out, got after what he wanted. He was basically an American hero. I mean, he was pissed off about something. Mm -hmm. He went after the man. He got what he wanted. Everyone wanted to be like him. Yeah. They almost looked at him as like, like we had mentioned, a modern day Robin Hood. Yeah. He just went after it. Yeah. It gave everybody something to believe in, I think, at that time. Well, yeah. And I think that's why so many people thought it was someone they knew. I mean, it it really gave these people something to believe in, like you said. Mm -hmm. We end the documentary with Frank Montoya Jr., that FBI special agent, basically in a press conference stating that at this point in time, the FBI didn't get their guy. They're closing the case for now. It's unresolved. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that it can never be reopened. Obviously, new tips and facts can come up and that can open up a case. But for now, they put a lot of time into this energy and they just they need to start focusing somewhere else. Basically, at this point, it's all just part of our cultural history. Exactly. And that's where it ends. Yeah. And I have always been so intrigued with this case. So I am so happy that we decided to cover it. Yeah. Now, next week, we will be diving into the HBO documentary, Baby God, which covers the unbelievable story of a fertility doctor who, for 30 years used his own sperm to impregnate his patients. I cannot wait to do this one. It sounds so fucked up. Oh my God. You guys will not want to miss it. If you could, please go out to iTunes and rate and review our show. Even leaving a one sentence review goes a long way and can help out our rankings. We love to interact with all of our listeners. So you can find us on Insta at sheer underscore crime underscore podcast, Twitter at share crime pod, and our Facebook group, Sheer Crime Podcast Discussion Group. You can send us all of your requests at requests at sharecrimepodcast.com. Thanks again. We love you all. And don't forget, never run with scissors. Bye, guys. Bye.